Make me your wife, your one and only. I'll give you everything you need. I'll give you suns, I'll give you glory. For I was born to be your queen. When they refuse and they oppose you, remember God is in your ear. You are the king and you must have and true that I was born to be your queen. Welcome to my series of short podcasts about the stories of the Tudors. I'm Tony Riches and I'm a historical fiction author from Pembrokeshire in Wales and a specialist in the history of the early Tudors. In this series, I'm talking about the wives of King Henry VIII and this time I'll be looking at the life of Anne Boleyn. Now, Anne has featured in each of my last two books as well as in my current work in progress, which is about Catherine Willoughby. And we think we know an awful lot about Anne Boleyn, but even the familiar portrait of her has been challenged as a good likeness. And it's not even certain what year she was born in. Her enemies delighted in telling stories about how she had um, a large mole on the side of her neck and an extra finger on her left hand, all signs that she might be a witch who used unfair means to entrance poor King Henry. And she was a woman who always evoked strong feelings in people. To the supporters of Henry's first wife, Queen Catherine of Aragon, she was a scheming, goggle-eyed whore who had bewitched Henry VIII away from his true wife and the true religion of Catholicism. And to her supporters... She was an intelligent, cultured and graceful lady with great drive and ambition. And her story has been told so many times and in such different ways that people can be forgiven for finding it difficult to separate the myths from the truth. Um, If you compare, for example, um, Natalie Dormer's seductive Anne Boleyn in the Tudors television series with... Claire Foy's portrayal in the adaptation of Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall. Uh, I've been watching both recently on DVD, re-watching them and um, comparing them. And it's interesting because Natalie Dormer was criticised for her portrayal of Anne in the Tudors series as manipulative and scheming. But she's been quoted as saying she often felt compromised by the way Anne's character was written for the first season and got tired of justifying the series' um, inaccuracies. And interestingly, the scriptwriter of the Tudors, Michael Hurst, 
made major changes in the character of Anne Boleyn in the second season, making her more politically engaged and astute, making her into a loving mother and a committed reformist. And extra scenes were added showing Anne talking to Henry VIII about Tyndale and instructing her ladies-in-waiting about the English Bible, quarrelling with Cromwell over the misuse of monastery monies. And Michael Hurst said that he wanted to show her as a human being a young woman placed in a really difficult and awful situation. She was manipulated by her father, by the king and, and circumstances, but also she was... Uh, feisty and had a point of view and tried to use her power to advance what she believed in. As I said, I've also been re-watching the BBC adaptation of Wolf Hall and I find myself wondering if Claire Foy's haughty Anne Boleyn might be closer to the truth. But of course, Hilary Mantel has written her Anne Boleyn as Thomas Cromwell would have observed her. Um, but in an interview at the time, Claire Foy said uh, she felt a lot of compassion for Anne Boleyn and described her as an incredible character with such spirit. Uh, but she was too much of a powerful opponent for Cromwell and had to go. So this leaves us wondering exactly who Anne Boleyn was. And I'll just run through uh, the basic. Uh, facts that we do know. She was born between 1501 and 1507, which is quite a wide gap. I think some records, the ones and sevens, are quite hard to determine the difference between. And so historians argue to this day about it. But the Boleyn family actually came from quite humble origins. Um, her great-grandfather, Geoffrey Boleyn, was a hatter in London in the 1430s. Uh, he was successful and uh, in 1457 became mayor of London. So by the time of his death, he'd become part of the gentry and Anne's father was uh, Sir Thomas Boleyn, who was a very experienced courtier and diplomat. And her mother was Elizabeth, the daughter of the powerful Duke of Norfolk. So Anne spent her childhood really in quite a lot of privilege and um, grew up as an adolescent in the courts of Europe because part of her uh, childhood was spent at the court of Archduchess Margaret of Austria who had a reputation as a, a powerful woman who could rule wisely as regent of the Netherlands. And I think Margaret was a big influence um, on Anne who was eventually sent to France where she served in the household of Mary Tudor, who's the subject of my uh, book before last, who was the sister of Henry the, Henry VIII and the wife of the French king, um, Louis, who died shortly after their marriage. So um, one of the things about the research I did for my book about Mary Tudor was I looked at the court of King Louis, which is sometimes dismissed um, a bit too quickly, and I realised how far ahead of the English the French were, that 
something like between five and ten times richer. It's hard to be sure because it depends what you count in as their part of their wealth. But the the French king um, Louis and his successor Francois uh, had twice as many mistresses as the English kings would have. And after the death of uh, King Louis, Anne Boleyn remained in France for between six and seven years, serving the new queen, uh, Queen Claude. So that's a lot of experience in a, in a very key position in, a, in one of the most um, well-run courts in Europe. And in 1522, she returned to England as lady-in-waiting to Catherine of Aragon and soon became popular among the young men at court. Um, it's interesting, I mentioned about the portrait. Uh, people do say that she wasn't an exceptionally beautiful woman, but it was her wit and her charm. And I think her experience... Uh, she spoke French so fluently that people said she could be mistaken for a French woman. And by 1523, she was actually betrothed to Henry Percy, who's an important noble. He was heir to the Earl of Northumberland. And uh, this is where it all starts going wrong, really, because um, Thomas Wolsey um, stepped in and refused the marriage. And... Uh, at the same time, um, Anne's sister Mary uh, was also at the English court and the king had had an affair with her. So as a result of that affair, the Boleyn family um, did extremely well in terms of gifts and titles and goodwill from the king. And Sir Thomas Boleyn, Anne's father, was made Earl of Wiltshire and Ormond and Anne and Mary's brother George Boleyn was appointed to the Royal Privy Chamber, which is a real uh, position of privilege because he's party to the inner thinkings of what's going on at court. And at some time around there, Henry VIII became obsessively fascinated by Anne and began to pursue her. Now, it's interesting to debate about uh, the extent to which she encouraged him. And I think... The key thing here is to remember uh, the strange uh, way they had in, in those times of what they called the games of courtly love, in that it was almost a ritualised way of flirting between um, courtiers, um, almost like a game. So they would send each other love tokens and um, write poems and things like that. Um, Sometimes it was, of course, completely innocent and sometimes not. But um, it's it, it's pretty evident that uh, Henry VIII planned to make Anne Boleyn his mistress because she'd seen what happened to her sister. And um, so she wouldn't have any of it and uh, really made it clear that she would only give in to his advances if she was his queen. So... This has been used as evidence of her scheming nature, but it really made good sense from her point of view because uh, if she was tarnished as his mistress, 
then that would probably be the rest of her future. Um, there was a, an obstacle in the way, by the way, which is uh, he was still married to Catherine of Aragon. And, of course, uh, what became the Queen, King's great matter, the, he, the secret proceedings seemed to go on forever when he tried to get an annulment from her. Um, she'd failed to provide him with the male heir that he longed for. It had been drummed into Henry by his father that that was his one big duty as king. And um, I still find it quite hard to understand why he was so um, really obsessed by that, but he was. That's that's um, unquestionable. And the problem was that Catherine was also the aunt of the powerful Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And Henry really didn't want to offend the Emperor and the Pope uh, Clement was, for the same reason, unwilling to annul the marriage, whatever reasons were put forward. So it seems that Anne began rather cleverly taking control of the court, slowly replacing uh, people loyal to Catherine of Aragon and using her family connections to make the most of Henry's obsession with her. And that's the way it worked, you see, was that she would choose um, courtiers that supported her argument and quietly get rid of those that didn't. And um, eventually, after quite a long time, uh, she finally gave Henry what he longed for, but um, any child that they had, of course, would be um, illegitimate. So on the 25th of January, 1533, Henry VIII married Anne in a secret ceremony. And of course, this would be seen by the Catholic Church as bigamy, but I don't think Henry cared at all. And he changed the course of history by breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and Anne was crowned queen in June the same year. And in the first week of September, 1533, gave birth to a daughter, who was, of course, the future Queen Elizabeth I. In the following year, the Act of Supremacy was passed, making Henry VIII the supreme head of the Church of England. And this is where Cromwell really begins to take power and take control with the uh, dissolution and um, using the money of the monasteries to fund... Um, Henry's whole regime. Sadly, in uh, 1534, Anne suffered a miscarriage, and this must have reminded Henry of um, the continuous series, I think there was like five uh, miscarriages that Catherine of Aragon suffered. And it's easy to forget that Henry and Anne were really quite happy for at least two years in that time and it wasn't until uh, 1536 when the king was thrown from his horse in a jousting accident it, in fact his horse might have even fallen on top of him and um, he was unconscious for quite a long time and many people thought he was dead in fact <coughs> it's said that when um, Anne Boleyn was uh, told that the king was dead uh, that she collapsed and 
gave birth to a stillborn male child. In fact, the king survived, of course, but it seems that he had this strange personality change as a consequence. Um, he lost interest in Anne and began having affairs with other women and took a great interest in Jane Seymour, who was one of Anne Boleyn's maids of honour. And, of course, to make matters much worse, uh, because of Anne's behaviour, she'd made enemies at court, uh, not the least of which was Thomas Cromwell, and these were now plotting her downfall. On the 2nd of May, 1536, um, Anne was arrested at Greenwich and taken to the Tower. Uh, she was charged with adultery, incest, plotting to murder the king, witchcraft. Um, the list is quite um, incredible, really. And the people brought forward as witnesses um, probably were quite uncomfortable as they gave their evidence because uh, the king had already decided that she would be found guilty uh, during the trial that was held on the 15th of May and she was sentenced to be beheaded. Uh, it's, it's fairly well known that uh, the king's mercy was to bring in an expert swordsman from Calais to be her executioner because the, uh, the sword was supposed to uh, deliver a cleaner cut than the axe, then they quite often botched the um, executions with an axe. But that image of Anne being beheaded by a sword is one that's very hard to forget. And on the morning of the 19th of May, Anne was taken to the Tower Green and the Imperial Ambassador, this is the Emperor's Ambassador, Chapis, uh, wrote to his, the Emperor later that day that the execution of the concubine took place at nine o'clock this morning in the tower. Uh, the thing was not done secretly for there were more than 2,000 persons present. Now there's quite a few things we have to remember here. Firstly that Chapuis was um, on the Catholic side so he was a supporter of Catherine of Aragon and in fact had begged to be allowed to go to Catherine when she was on her deathbed and, and had been forbidden from doing so and was no fan of Anne Boleyn. So he came very much from a particular point of view and perhaps was telling the emperor what he wanted to hear. Um, interestingly, all those people that witnessed the execution of the queen uh, would have left um, reports either directly or indirectly of what they said but their accounts are so different because they're all shaped by their personal prejudices and the, their intended audience and I think this is the the key to why we've got quite a little bit confused about the sort of woman that Anne Boleyn was that throughout her life the accounts of everything that she did um, are given by people that are coming from a particular point of view, as is always the case in history. We have all letters from Henry VIII to Anne Boleyn, but none of her replies, or very few, um, 
fragments of replies. So it's very hard. We have to build a picture from the evidence that we've got. Um, people think that her last words uh, are, are properly documented, but in fact, uh, even the accounts of those differ quite widely. Um, most people agree that um, she did make a speech. Um, some people say she looked feeble as she ascended the scaffold. Other people say she looked noble and proud. Um, it's, it's definitely the case that um, she did speak before she was executed. And interestingly, one of her greatest critics was the anonymous writer of what we call the Spanish Chronicle, which is a narrative of Henry VIII that um, was really written by the Spanish ambassador or a Spanish merchant. But the author of the Spanish Chronicle um, says that Anne would not confess to her guilt, but showed a devilish spirit um, and seemed to believe that she wasn't going to die. And that she said in her speech that everything they have accused me of is false. And the principal reason I am to die is Jane Seymour, as I was the cause of ill that befell my mistress. And at the mention of Jane Seymour, who was the king's soon-to-be wife, the Chronicle says that Anne was silenced by the men on the scaffold and looked around her as if she was hoping for a reprieve and continued to deny her guilt. Um, other accounts uh, say her quite the opposite, that she raised her eyes to the heavens and begged God and the king to forgive her offences. So there's two radically different views. Her remains were buried in an unmarked grave in the chapel in the Tower of London. And when the chapel was renovated during Queen Victoria's reign, Anne's remains were discovered. And so her final resting place is now marked on the marble floor. I hope I've raised your interest in looking again at the fascinating story of Anne Boleyn. And I'd like to recommend two excellent books that I've read recently. Uh, they're both fairly new out. The first is Alison Weir's um, the second book in her Six Tudor Queens series, Anne Boleyn, A King's Obsession. And I'd refer you to the um, intriguing author's note at the back because uh, Alison says, I could write another book on how this novel was constructed from the historical sources. Over the course of my years of study, I've seen perceptions of Anne Boleyn change substantially. I'm aware that in some circles, particularly on the internet, she's acquired celebrity status and that she's become many things to many people and in the process controversial. During the writing of this book, an admirer of Anne Boleyn expressed the hope I would portray her accurately, to which I answered, historians might well differ when considering what accurately might mean. There's so much room for conjecture. So... Um, that's Six Tudor Queens, which I did enjoy reading. And the other is an excellent book by Amy Licence, um, 
so six Tudor queens, that's historical fiction, but well-researched. And Amy's book, Anne Boleyn, Adultery, Heresy, Desire, is um, a, a really intriguing um, review of everything that we know about Anne Boleyn. And if you look at the introduction of that, um, Amy says that Anne Boleyn was one of her first heroines from the age of 13. And since then, she's been trying to answer the question of why Anne fascinates uh, readers so much and why her fairy tale that went wrong story resonates so deeply in the modern world and why it is so passionately defended. But um, at the end of her introduction, she says that... Um, Anne Boleyn had connections with leading figures of the day which led her to develop different tastes, different standards of behaviour and different expectations to those of her homegrown peers. She was a woman who refused to be constrained by culturally imposed boundaries, embracing opportunity, following her own path and meeting queenship and death with great bravery. That's why she captivated Henry and generations since. And I think that um, it's good to read both of these books and together you start to build an understanding of why Anne Boleyn is for many um, the most fascinating of, of all of the Tudor queens. Links to all of my books can be found on my website, tonyriches.com and in the next podcast in this series I'll be looking at the rather tragic life of Queen Jane Seymour. The music that I used to introduce this podcast was from the Ballad of Anne Boleyn by Carlene and I'd like to finish with um, another track from that uh, Ballad of Anne Boleyn, To God I Commend My Soul. Thank you for listening. Was I not good? Was I not true? Did I not give you all I could? I bore you sons Turn to rest upon the blade.